Welcome to the New England Football Journal podcast. I'm your host, John Tiranitas, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Stone. Kevin, happy Memorial Day, man. How are you today? You too, brother. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you? Good. How's your throat? Did you clear it out after last week? <laughs> that was brutal. Yeah, I'm good to go. All right, good. I'm, I'm glad you laid off the grenades. <laughs> Did <laughs> you do good. that? Did you do that in honor of Memorial Day? No grenades today? I'll save it for tomorrow? Of course, of course. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for joining me, man. So we got a lot to talk about this week. Obviously, it was a busy week in the world of New England football. Of course, as always, we're going to start with our opening drive. And since I always let you go first, I'm going to go first this week. How's that sound? Cool. Sounds good. All right, so my opening drive is simple. Look. I'm not a golf fan. I never have been. I never will be. I don't watch golf. I don't play golf. I don't have a problem with people who love golf, who watch it, who play it. If you enjoy it, good for you. It's not my thing. This whole Brady, Manning, Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods golf thing, while it's great that they raised, I, I believe, $20 million, I find the whole thing to be annoying. I find it annoying that everybody and their mother was watching it. You couldn't go on Twitter without somebody commenting on it and talking about how shitty a golfer Brady is until until the back nine when he finally turned it around. And I believe at one point, I don't know what the hole was, he got a hole in one or something. Uh, it, the whole thing was annoying to me. I don't like this version of Tom Brady. I've been very open about that. I like the Tom Brady that was humble, that was focused, that was all about winning. This, this PR-driven Tom Brady bugs me. And I get it. Him and Manning have a great relationship, and there's a lot of mutual respect there for each other. Obviously, there's mutual respect there between Mickelson and Woods. But this whole thing bothered me. I didn't like it. I didn't care about it. I wasn't going to watch it. It wasn't intriguing enough to me. I think Chris Mad Dog Russo made a really good point on his show on Friday. If you wanted to pique my interest in regards to something involving Manning and Brady, if they did something where they went to, to a high school field or a college, small college field, and they brought a bunch of receivers in, and they installed some of their favorite pass concepts from when Manning was with the Colts and Brady was with the Patriots, and they walked through them and ran them and explained them. I'd be all over that, obviously, as a football junkie. But, but this golf thing really bothered me. It's great that they raised all that money, but I hope I, we don't get another one of these. I don't want to see it again. I don't want to hear about it again. I'm all set. What's your opening drive? So, yours real quick. One of the few things we've disagreed with, uh, I loved it. Um, I played golf in high school. I've played um, since I was about 13. So, um, while I agree with you, this version of Brady is horrible to watch. Uh, it's painful. It's, it's embarrassing almost. Uh, I thought for what they were trying to do, uh, I thought it was a pretty good day of, of television. And the mind-boggling thing to me is the fact that it averaged more viewers than The Last Dance did. Uh, which is crazy to me. Um, so I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I, again, I would be with you in terms of, you know, if they did a football competition, I think it'd be more entertaining than the golf. But uh, between the downpours and, and Brady completely sucking for nine holes, uh, I thought it was pretty good. I watched it with a couple buddies of mine. Uh, it was good. But in terms of my opening thing, uh, my opening drive, sorry, uh, I know you know this, and I'm sure several people know, uh, I've been on Twitter pumping a high school football helmet tournament. Uh, for the best helmet in the state of Mass. Uh, Situate ended up coming out the winner. Uh, we had 72 total helmets. Uh, I think there's about 300 schools in, in Massachusetts that have football teams, but 
uh, we were able to get 72 in there and, and had, a, had about 13,000 people, just over 13,000 people vote on it. So uh, we had Donnie Wahlberg tweeting about it, um, Hank from Barstool and, and Scal Brian Scalabrini as well. So uh, thank you to you for, for pumping it for me and, sure. and everybody, and everybody that came out and uh, came out well voted and, and hopefully Situate has a good run in the, uh, in the national tournament as well. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. I, I mean, I know when you pitched the idea to me a couple of weeks ago, I admittedly, I was skeptical. I didn't know what to think. Uh, I researched uh, the company behind it a little bit more, and I saw what they were doing and how they were basically just trying to have fun with it, try, yeah, trying to yeah. create Twitter engagement and get people pumped up about football and high school football. And mm -hmm. and I, I said to you, I said, I, I think it's worth a shot. Might as well. What yeah. the hell else are we going to do? in these times right. of quarantine and and the response was awesome as you mentioned kevin over thirteen thousand votes we had 72 entrants you did a great job of managing the different polls promoting it uh it certainly helps when you have guys with some name cashier like donnie Wahlberg, brian scalabrini i don't know who the hell hank is but hank from barstool um i i thought that was great that they voted um and, and i thought the response was tremendous obviously there were a couple of clowns on twitter that have to throw in their negative two cents and and Absolutely. tell us their stupid opinions <laughs> as if we care because God forbid you were positive about something but whatever <laughs> right. that's just the world we live in today but yeah overall I thought you did an awesome job with it I thought the response was awesome and uh, good luck to Situate High School Herb Divide and the Sailors their helmet their decal advances to the national tournament um, and hopefully they do well certainly the program itself has done really well they won the D five Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Coach Devine, I know him personally, great guy, terrific coach. So uh, we wish Situate the best in the National Helmet High School Football Helmet Tournament um, the rest of this offseason. All right, let's get back to Brady here. And I got to ask you this. Did it bother you seeing him practicing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last week, doing the offseason workout thing with his teammates? I know there were a lot of people here that it obviously bothered seeing that, seeing him in another in another helmet and another colored uniform, even though it was a practice jersey. Um, but there were other people around here that were bothered by the fact that he was out there doing this with his new teammates. But for the last couple of years in New England, he avoided mini camps. He avoided OTAs. He didn't go to anything that wasn't mandatory. A lot of people were hurt by the fact that he was willing to apply himself now, but he wasn't so willing to do that his last few years here in New England. What are your overall thoughts on seeing him on the field with his new Buccaneer teammates and him doing some stuff with them in the offseason as opposed to what he did here in New England? So I think being bothered by it and being hurt by it are two different things. Uh, bothered by it, yes. Uh, just because, you know, we've talked about this, the way that it all ended here, uh, for him in particular, they deserved a better ending to this run. Uh, and I think that now we clearly see he didn't give a rat's ass about the last two years. And for a guy that really prided himself in and hyped up the fact that he was team first, um, to know that as a fan, the last two years were almost a waste of time. Um, that sucks. But in terms of being hurt by it, no. Um, I think the 2007 Super Bowl kind of numbed me from ever being hurt from any athletics ever again. Um, so, again, it's he's going to do it. He, he kind of has to do it. Um, so, again, I think hurt and bothered are two different things. I think you bring up an interesting point with the last couple of years and and his level of engagement with the organization in the offseason. 
I think a lot of it stems from the fact that he did not get a new contract or the contract that he wanted after that Philadelphia Super Bowl loss. I think had he got the commitment from them to let him finish his career here and play until he's 45, I think his approach would have been a lot different. I agree with you. I'm not going to go as far as saying he checked out, but Mm -hmm. he certainly obviously had an issue with Belichick and Kraft and the organization, and that's why he stayed away. I've always felt that it was a little bit of a cop-out to say that my wife wanted me home more so that I could spend more time with my family. I'm like, dude, your wife has stood in the background, watched you do whatever you do, has been supportive, has been visibly supported, and and, and what? Now all of a sudden she doesn't want you doing this anymore in the offseason? Give me a break. Especially with with, with, with these new CBAs in the NFL, the last two CBAs, what these players are asked to do in the offseason is nowhere near what they used to be asked to do in the offseason. So he has plenty of time to see his family in the offseason. I always thought that was the ultimate cop-out by him. Look, he has to do what he's doing in Tampa. He has, to, he has to get a feel for his new receivers, his new tight ends. He has to understand how they run routes, how they operate. He has to understand an entire new offense, verbiage, concepts, you name it. He has to do what he's doing. I totally get it. But I don't blame Patriot fans and some people in the media around here if they're a little bothered by the fact that he didn't make that commitment to this organization the last two offseasons. And and I agree. I'm bothered by it, too. And I think he didn't make that commitment simply because he was sending the organization a message. You're not going to pay me. You're not going to commit to me long term. Then I'm not going to give you any more of my time than I have to. I completely agree. Uh, the the whole wife thing, that's embarrassing as a pro athlete. Um, it's Not to mention he's got nannies and, and all that crap to probably take care of, of stuff around the house um, that he was talking about as well. So uh, I agree with you there. That's embarrassing. But, uh, yeah, it's just it, it sucks to see that he does still care enough to put that extra effort in. But uh, like you said, that's obviously – that was all a shot at, at Belichick. Now, of course, last week we also found out immediately after the last dance – that ESPN is now going to do a nine-part documentary on Tom Brady that's going to air next year, 2021, called The Man in the Arena. Simple question, Kevin Stone. Are you interested in it? Do you care? Or are you indifferent and you're going to wait and see what it looks like before you decide you want to invest your time into it next year? So I think if you're a Patriots fan, you got to be interested in it. Uh, but I hate the idea that he's doing it you know, while he's playing. I think the reason the bowl stuff was so good was, you know, it was what, 20 years ago, something like that. So um, him playing now, it's going to feel a bit odd. And uh, and if you're a teammate of his, how can you feel good about that? Not knowing, you know, what's going to be said or, or aired or anything like that. So am I intrigued? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's Tom Brady and, and what he did here. I want to know every little inside detail you can, but um, in terms of liking the idea of him doing it now, I just think it's very awkward. I wouldn't hold my breath. I don't think he's going to give you as much insight as Jordan did. Uh, I don't think it's mm-hmm. going to be nearly as fascinating as the last dance was. Um, look, Tom Brady has become an opportunist like every other athlete. And I think he saw that opportunity now with the success of the last dance. He felt now was the time to, to put himself out there and to get his brand out there. I'm a firm believer, though, that a lot of what Tom Brady does moving forward is about the TB12 brand and and expanding that brand and proving that that brand 
and, and that philosophy works, and that's why he's been able to play until he's 45 years old. That being said, would I watch it? Of course I'm going to watch it, okay? He's Tom Brady. He, he's arguably the greatest athlete to ever play in Boston sports history. Obviously, we're going to watch it. We, we've all followed the organization, covered it, rooted for it. We're Tom Brady fans. So we're going to watch it. We're going to be invested in it. Is it going to be this groundbreaking documentary that's going to uh, shed some light into some of some of his experience in New England and what happened at the end? No, I don't think that's going to happen simply because I think Brady's going to keep a lot close to the vest. I don't think a lot of that stuff's going to come out until after he retires. So if you're expecting that, I I wouldn't get my hopes up. I think it's going to be more about his upbringing and his path to Michigan and then eventually getting drafted by the Patriots and winning the starting job and going on to becoming the, the greatest quarterback of all time. I think that's what it's going to be about. And guess what? We already know that story. So I'm curious to see right. how ESPN packages this because that story's been told. And, and people in New England certainly know it well, but I think people nationally know that story well as well. So I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be as captivating or as interesting as the last dance was simply because – it's Tom Brady. We've been there, done that. I don't know how much more ESPN is going to do to spice up that story. Now, staying with the Patriots, the Patriots extended Patrick Chung, which I swear to God, I feel like they extend this guy every offseason, it seems like, or at least, it's so right? or at least every couple offseasons. They extended yeah, him yeah. again last week for a couple more years. This new extension, which will pay him north of $12 million, also guarantees the Patriots the cap flexibility that they needed to go out and sign second-round pick Kyle Duggar. The Patriots have now signed their entire draft class, which is pretty impressive considering the cap situation they were in going into the draft. So what are your thoughts on this Chung extension? So like you said, the fact they keep signing him, when they still don't need to, I think he still had time left on this last deal. So, uh, and they keep doing it, which is very odd. But uh, as a player, I, I don't think he has a ton left. Uh, I think this was more of a locker room signing than anything else, uh, especially to help out Duggar a little bit. Um, I'm more intrigued about the fact that they got, like you said, everyone uh, to sign in that draft class. I also think it's kind of hard if you're a rookie um, to kind of make a big fuss about it. I know guys do when they can, uh, but to just drag that out you know, before your career even starts, it's just a tough way to start out. Um, so that was good to see. But uh, again, I think the chunk thing is more of a, a leadership thing than, than an on-field thing at this point. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I still think he has value on the field. He's a three-down player. He's a three-level player. Is he the player he was three years ago? No. Uh, but I still think he does have value. And I agree with you. I think he has a lot of value off the field, in the locker room, being a veteran presence for a guy like Kyle Duggar and for some of their other younger players on defense now as far as the Patriots being able to sign this draft class well that's one of the reasons why Bill Belichick traded out of the first round I know that people were up in arms around here when he did that but part of the reason he did it was the Patriots cap situation it it would have been easier for him to sign a second rounder pay a second rounder and pay the rest of that draft class and it would have been to pay a first rounder they would have had to do a lot of other things and, and they would have had to have gotten creative to create the cap space that they were going to need to pay a first rounder. Now, look, obviously, Duggar's a guy who you took in the second round. 
I don't think expectations are going to be super high for him as a rookie. I think he's going to play on special teams. I think he'll play in sub packages. But he is one of the heir apparent to one of these safeties that are the veteran safeties on the back end of that defense, whether it be McCourty, whether it be Chung, or whether it be Adrian Phillips, who they signed this offseason. He's going to replace one of those guys. It's just a matter of when. But certainly, you have to give Bill Belichick credit for how creative he got moving some money around with Chung and leaving just enough cap space there and doing just enough with his contracts that he's able to get this entire class signed and get him in the fold well before training camp starts. And again, I think it, it speaks to how underrated Belichick is in terms of understanding the cap and manipulating money. Sure, a lot of people have been critical of him this offseason because a lot of those heavy contracts that he gave out three, four years ago He's paying for it now on the back end, but he's done a pretty good job this offseason of manipulating whatever money he had to spend, moving some things around, freeing up money, and he was able to dip into free agency a little, but he was also able to get his draft class side. Now, I'm going to stay with the NFL here because we didn't talk about this last week, and I just briefly want to touch on it. I want to get your thoughts on, on the NFL and this minority coaching situation. Of course, two weeks ago, the league announced that they were going to reward teams in the third round. Teams are going to be able to move up six spots if they hired an African-American head football coach or a minority head football coach. And they were going to move up 10 spots if in the third round if they hired a minority general manager. What are your thoughts on that? And are you surprised that it got squashed pretty quickly? Am I surprised? God, no. Um, I think it was it was very patronizing. Um, look, I understand, you know, they're trying to make, you know, progress and all that, but um, to set it up that way, it's just right off the bat. It just visually, and when you read it and saw it, it just looked dumb. Um, so am I surprised it got squashed? No. Uh, but I didn't think it really served the purpose uh, that they're ultimately trying to get to. Yeah, I, I thought it was embarrassing. I thought it was a really, really bad look for the NFL. <laughs> and look, you want, to, you want minority coaches to have an opportunity to advance in your league? It's simple. It's about coaching development, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. There are 13 minority coaches in the NFL currently, okay? 12 of those 13 are on the defensive side of the ball. The only minority offensive coordinator in the league right now is Eric Bieniemy of the Kansas City Chiefs. That's embarrassing. And that's a problem because owners love to hire offensive coaches. Look at all the hires this offseason. With the exception of Ron Rivera, every other hire was an offensive hire. So offense matters in this league. It drives coaching hires. If you want to help minority candidates, then help them ascend to offensive coordinator positions. And if they have success, they can then ascend to head coaching positions. I think it's all about coaching development. And the league has done a good job with that. And I don't have a problem with expanding the Rooney rule to front office personnel. But to sit there to try to patronize these owners and say, hey, we'll, we'll incentivize you to hire African-Americans or minorities as head coaches and general managers, that's embarrassing. It's a bad look for the league. I'm glad that a lot of people around the league, particularly the players, came out and railed against it. And, and Goodell and his cronies got their heads out of their asses and they backed off. Because had they not done that, I think it would have been a real PR problem from the NFL. The NFL has got to be better than that. If you want to be a more diverse league, it's simple. 
then develop minority coaches and put them in a position where they can succeed and eventually become head coaches or general managers. You don't do it by trying to bait owners into hiring them with improved draft position. I thought the whole thing was embarrassing and stupid. All right, now we're going to shift gears here now to the college game. We haven't talked a lot about the UMass football program on our podcast, but they had a pretty good week last week. They got three big commitments from quarterbacks Brady Olson, Zamar Wise, and wide receiver Justin Roberts. Now, look, the UMass football program is pretty beleaguered right now. Head football coach Walt Bell has assembled a nice staff. They recruit well. They're trying to get this thing going again. Obviously, it's not easy. Those are three big commitments from them, however, especially Wise, who was a top 25 recruit in the state of New Jersey two years ago. So this is a kid who's really talented. How important was last week to the UMass football program, Kevin? How important was it for them to not only land these kids, but get back in the news cycle? So we've kind of talked about it with BC. I think uh, it's the same thing. Coaches have to develop that relationship. And obviously, you know, Bell has had a little bit, uh, kind of a head start on Halfley, but uh, it's huge. And and I don't know all three players um, talent-wise like you may, but uh, I know the Olsen family and I know Dale and Dana Olsen, uh, two very, very good coaches here in Massachusetts. Uh, and, and if he's anything like them, uh, UMass got an absolute, an absolute steal. Uh, the family in general is just, they are very football-oriented, uh, but they also know kind of what comes first in terms of life and priorities. So uh, I think it's a, a huge week for UMass. I agree. I, I think it's a big week because, look, they needed this. Brady Olsen's a two-star kid. But here's the thing. Brady Olsen also had offers from Georgia Tech and Colorado State. So he picked UMass over those schools. Obviously, the desire to play closer to home, be closer to family, is probably the biggest single reason why he picked UMass. But I bet you he also picked UMass because he he was smart enough to look at the situation and say, hey, I could probably start at UMass sooner than I would have at Georgia Tech or possibly Colorado State. So from his vantage point, it's a smart move because you know what? You get to play closer to home. You're probably going to get an opportunity sooner than later. And you're going to be a linchpin recruit that the UMass coaching staff is going to lean on to eventually try to get this program turned around in the next couple of years. It's been a, it's been a tough go for UMass in recent years. And I think Walt Bell is trying to do the right things. I think they've done a great job as a staff on social media with recruiting, with promoting the program. Uh, I, I think that they understand and they get what young people like and what they want. And I think they're trying to develop a, a culture there that, that is, is, a big time football culture. Um, in order to do that, you gotta you gotta get kids like the kids they got, and they gotta continue to do it. Look, you're not gonna be in the conversation if you're your mass for the four and the five star kids. Forget it. Your goal is to try to land as many three star kids as you can, and try to get the best two star kids that you can. That's your that's where you are. That's where you're gonna be slotted when it comes to the recruiting game. And so I think. They had a great week last week. I think Walt Bell really needed this. They've kind of flown under the radar a little bit, obviously, with the Jeff Halfley hire at Boston College. That has gotten a lot of the local college football attention. But UMass got some of that attention back last week. If they can continue to recruit this way to round out the rest of the spring, they'll be in pretty good shape for their 2021 classes and eventually their 2022 classes. Speaking of recruiting, 
old friend Steve Adazio, former Boston College head football coach, has been in the news lately because last week Colorado State offered three Massachusetts recruits scholarship offers. Aiden Pereira, who's a quarterback at Central Catholic, uh, Nick Schiaffoni, who is a defensive tackle from the class of 2022 at BBNN, and Jaden Young, who's another defensive lineman, class of 2021 at BBNN. Now, here's the thing. Why do you think Adazio is recruiting Massachusetts and New England? I have my theories. I did a piece on this today uh, on New England Football Journal. But why do you think he's recruiting this area, Kevin? So I think the easy answer uh, is with everything going on right now, he still probably has a – well, not probably. He probably he definitely does have a ton of connections around here still. And I think it's just an easy way uh, to make sure you're still getting talent in a time where you don't really know who and, and when you can go meet up with and talk to and, and kind of have that experience with. So uh, I think it's just in, in terms of being um, just easier for Adazio, you know what I mean? Um, I think it's, again, the foundation he laid here, you know, people can argue whether he was good for, for BC or not, but either way, he still has those connections here and, and if I was him, I would use them too. I think you make a great point. I think first and foremost, he has connections here. He's built inroads in this region recruiting the last seven years while he was at Boston College. So I, I think that's the first thing. And I don't just think he has those connections in Massachusetts. He's a Connecticut guy. So he has those connections throughout New England. I think that's one. I think the other thing is it just speaks to Massachusetts high school football and the amount of talent that's coming out of this state now. A lot of, of national programs, and I'm not going to say that Colorado State is on par with a Big Ten program or an Alabama or a Georgia, but a lot of, of national Power Five programs want a, a place at the proverbial table here in Massachusetts. Adazio sees this and he says to himself, well, we need a seat at that table too. Because I got to tell you, Massachusetts has a larger population than the state of Colorado does. There's about 6.9 million people in Massachusetts and about 5.7 million in Colorado. So you've got a much bigger recruiting base in Massachusetts potentially than you would in Colorado. The other thing is, it's hard to recruit on the West Coast, man. You're recruiting against mm -hmm. the Pac-12. In your own state, you're recruiting against Colorado and Air Force. It's competitive. It's hard to get talent in your neck of the woods out there if you're Adazio. It's a smart move for him and his staff. And again, between him and Brian White, running backs coach there, they have a lot of connections in Massachusetts and in New England. They can tap into those connections and they can use them to potentially pick up some talent. Now, a kid like Brady Olson, it makes you wonder if that UMass offer wasn't on the table, does he consider Colorado State? I think he does. Because I yeah. think Adazio's offense, for as much as they run the football, it is a quarterback-friendly offense because so many things open up in the passing game because of that running game. I think for a pro-style quarterback like Brady Olsen, it would have been an appealing destination potentially had he not committed to UMass. So, I, again, I think this is a smart play for Adazio, at least for the next two years. I think once he establishes himself in Colorado, develops those relationships with the coaches, I think that you'll see more of a shift on West Coast recruiting and focusing out that way. But in the meantime, if you could pick up three or four commitments out of New England, especially Massachusetts, why not? Smart move for him. They're guys that can play. They're going to come out there. They could help your program within two years. Rather than investing those scholarships 
in in-state kids in Colorado or kids from a surrounding state, like let's say a Wyoming, that may not have the same talent level as a as a Schiaffoni or a or a Jaden Young. You know what? You invest in those guys. You offer them the scholarships. And if let's say Jaden Young bites, and right now, if my memory serves me correctly, that's the best offer he has in terms of D1 offers. If that's the case, you get a player like that to come out to Colorado State, that's a pretty good pickup that can help you and can probably help you pretty quickly. So, again, smart move by Adazio at Colorado State to the lengthy list of programs that are now recruiting Massachusetts. I've been beating that drum for the last two years. I'm going to continue to beat it because I think it's really impressive the amount of out-of-state programs that are now tapping into Massachusetts and New England for talent. All right, now, speaking of high school football, of course, high school football has been a major topic of conversation around these parts in recent weeks. Last couple of weeks, the MIA has had meetings uh, with the different sports in regards to divisions and division alignments and <clears throat> the new statewide playoff system that's uh, scheduled to go in effect in 2021. And, of course, part of this conversation also centers around the MAC Preps ranking system. So this is our final thought for this week's podcast. So here's my question to you, Kevin. What do you know about the Max Preps ranking system, and are you a fan of it? Why or why not? So I'm not, and the only reason I say that is because I know once they start using it, uh, it is going to be very dependent, if not fully dependent, on coaches or ADs or someone uh, putting in records. Now, again, I've been covering sports around here, since 2008, uh, sometimes there aren't even rosters at games. Right. Um, so uh, do I think that every single football team uh, or athletic department is going to do their part uh, to make this system run smoothly? There is no chance in hell. Uh, but do I like the idea of it? I guess so. Uh, I just have no faith or confidence that everyone's going to do their part to make it uh, run as smoothly as it's going to need to I hate it. I can't stand it. And a lot of the reasons are what you just mentioned. I think it's going to be dependent on coaches and athletic directors doing a lot of this work. Coaches submitting in schedules, athletic directors submitting in schedules and scheduling games. And, you, you, you know, you're going to have to schedule up now because a lot of your ranking is going to depend on the strength of your schedule and your record. I, I can't stand it. One of the things I do like about the current system, and, and there are things I like about the current system, but I have also been critical of other aspects of this current system is the fact that it's simple. It's a simple system. Yeah. The numbers are simple. It works. Strength of schedule doesn't factor into it, nor should it. It should strictly come down to your record and then your yeah. opponent and how they do. It shouldn't necessarily be the quality of your opponent. It should be more about how many games your opponent wins to position you to have a better ranking. This whole idea that you have to play up, like for example, Franklin is playing St. John's prep. Now that Ian Bain has done a tremendous job at Franklin. And I know yeah, firsthand absolutely. I've coached against him. I've coached against them for years. They could hang with the prep for a half, three quarters, maybe, but a coach shouldn't have to do that in order to improve their so-called ranking so that they can be better positioned to make the playoffs. Because there's always the other possibility, which is St. John's prep puts the wood to them, smashes them. They suffer a couple of injuries, and now that affects them the rest of the season. So I have a real problem with it. I don't like it. I don't like this whole statewide playoff idea to begin with. 
I'd like it a lot better if you had a more sensible ranking system. You know, one of the things I do like about the one of the proposals that the mass coaches voted on last week that they're going forward to plan two, as it's known. One of the things I do like about it, and I talked about this with Steve Dombowski last week, is the fact that you would take the top eight teams in each division. It's a statewide playoff, top 64 teams in the state, duke it out, and eventually you get down to 16, and those 16 teams play in the Super Bowl, and you determine the winner in each division. I like that, but I don't like this max preps component of it. I think it is so ridiculous because here's the thing. The last few years, we've been talking about teams with losing records making the playoffs and how it's a bad look for high school football in Massachusetts. Well, I think it's going to be equally a bad look if a team that, let's say, goes 7-3, and 8-2 and two, potentially stays home because their ranking's not high enough for them to be a top eight team in their division because they didn't, right. quote, play up. I, I can't stand the whole thing. I know that the, the majority of the rest of the country uses it. I don't know why we need to do it. But I think part of the reason is, quite frankly, the MIA is freaking lazy. They don't want to pay people to stay on top of these things. And I think that they're going to put it on the ADs. They're going to put it on the coaches. And I'm with you. I think it's going to be a complete poop show because you're going to have coaches that are dependent on their ADs to schedule games. They're scheduling games they don't want. Coaches aren't going to turn in scores to, to local papers. So you're not going to be able to track who's played who and who could potentially be ranked where. I think it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. And you know what? Part of me hopes it is because the MIA deserves that because of their inability to just be fair, balanced, and managed the right way because they're incapable of doing that because they're always looking to reinvent the wheel. This could potentially blow up in their face, not just in football, but in a lot of sports. Well, that's it for this week's podcast as always you can follow us on twitter instagram and facebook you can find me at uftbj and you can find kevin stone on twitter at kstone06 for kevin stone i'm john serenitas until next week peace